Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Legislative session wrapped up last week. Lawmakers agreed on a $117 billion budget and during a tumultuous 60 days approved significant changes to gun laws, housing, education and more. Amid the flurry of legislation, the question looms over Governor DeSantis' presidential aims, even with a slate of bills apparently geared to help the governor should he run. Joining us to talk about what passed, what got left behind and what it means for Florida residents, Lynn Hatter, News Director with WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee. Lynn, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Jason Garcia, investigative journalist and author of the Substack newsletter Seeking Rents. Jason, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And political reporter William March. William, thanks as well. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, let's start with a budget, $117 billion. It's about $5 billion more than last year. Jason, what does that tell you about the state of Florida's economy right now? Well, it tells you people are moving here and, you know, Florida has a very sales tax dependent budget. So when the, as the population grows and more people are buying taxable goods, the budget goes way up. It also tells you there's an awful lot of federal aid still in that budget, still from mostly a legacy of, of COVID and all the relief programs and aid programs that, that went into effect during that period. So mm-hmm. this budget is is sort of heavily buttressed right now with federal funding as well. That's interesting because 2021, I think, was when the then record $101 billion Florida budget included quite a lot of federal aid. So that hasn't gone away completely. No, not yet. And in fact, that's one of the things advocates have been warning of is that uh, this stuff will roll off soon and there will have to be a plan in place to deal with that. And that's why there's also been a lot of a lot of focus on non-recurring spending and non-recurring tax cuts because folks are trying to avoid locking themselves into something uh, when the money may not be there down the road. You haven't heard a lot about the federal assist from Governor, De- Governor DeSantis and his administration, though? <laughs> no, you haven't, but it's really funny. Uh, one of the largest increases in the entire budget is to uh, Ron DeSantis's own office, the, uh, the budget for the executive office of the governor has gone way up. Part of that is because he keeps getting the state sued. But part of that is because he wants to buy a new tracking program to keep track of all the federal aid coming into Florida. Hmm. Lynn, what stands out for you about this budget? I think one of the things that stands out to me is um, some of the changes that were made in how we spend money for education. We have um, the new universal voucher program. Lawmakers set aside $350 million in case we go over in that since we don't really know how much it's going to cost, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have much more flexibility for school districts when it comes to teacher salary increases. Now, that's been a growing problem because you have this issue of compression where you're raising the wages of new teachers, but teachers with 10, 15 years in the system, their salaries aren't going up. And that's been a big cause of concern. And this budget actually does address that. And then you just have more money going to state workers um, in general because the state is losing employees. There's what 16,000 open positions right now in the state of Florida. 
and I live in Tallahassee and you see it all the time, state workers are bouncing from college to college to state to city to local to city because everybody is trying to pick off each other's employees. Mm -hmm. Um, So those were some of the really big standouts that were there for me to see how lawmakers are spending this money, how they're moving money around to try to shore up some of these places where they're starting to have some really big problems with employee turnover. And that's with both teachers and with state workers, because somebody has to sort of be in the offices to keep the lights going. The budget had bipartisan support too. I'm wondering how you square that, Lynn, with the divisiveness and polarizing uh, legislation that we saw this session. Well, no one is going to say no to getting their projects funded, right? And so, you know, what you saw here were there were disagreements with policy, but everybody likes to spend money. And so you saw that where people are rallying around more money for the environment, more money for education, Lots of member projects in that budget, too. And there were very few things that Democrats actually disagreed with when it came down to sort of how to spend. They may have had issue with, you know, allowing charter schools to tap into um, local government funds that are raised for public school infrastructure. But when it comes to the budget, it's almost kind of a separate animal apart from those really big, heavy policy issues like concealed carry, permitless concealed carry, and abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, They're almost sort of two different animals, even though policy does impact budget. William, I'm wondering what the big standout for you was from this budget. And on the flip side of that, are you expecting DeSantis to wield his veto pen much this year? I think Len and Jason mentioned two of the biggest things that stuck out to me. The universal voucher program was one, of course. As to the vetoes, last year DeSantis set basically a record almost in vetoing lawmakers' member projects. He has said he won't do as much this year. And let's face it, this year he has had a legislature that was extremely compliant mm-hmm. in fulfilling his wishes. As Jason mentioned, he's also got a budget that's padded comfortably with federal aid, which will make vetoes less necessary. I don't think you'll see him ardently vetoing as he did last year. He's also in a position where he wants to maintain political goodwill. He's um, on the verge of announcing a run for president. Yeah, Can I just add one point to that? Because the one thing to keep in mind about the budget, too, is it's also about what's not funded. Even in a $117 billion budget, there's a lot of things they don't do. And I'll just give you one example. Because of uh, federal aid running out at for Medicaid, this is the health insurance for, for low-income folks in, in America, Florida is in the process of culling of more than 900,000 Floridians off of Medicaid, potentially as many as, as almost 2 million. And yet th- th- this does not have to happen if the state were to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, which it has refused to do for more than a decade now. There is no money in this budget to expand Medicaid, right? So most of those people or many of those people will lose insurance entirely. There is some money in the budget to expand a program specifically for children in low-income families, but there is not a broader expansion of health care access, even as a million or more Floridians are about to lose their state health care. Yeah, and to Jason's point, um, lawmakers did actually do an expansion for kid care, and that's for families that are sort of caught in this income gap where they make too much money for Medicaid, um, but not enough money um, to be able to sort of, you know, fund their health care on their own. And so kid care is really important. And that was actually 
a very bipartisan bill. It was pushed in um, the legislature by both a Democrat and a Republican, um, and it got through. And I think that was actually one of the brighter spots in this session to show that even something like this kid care expansion could still get through because with those um, 900,000 people who are about to fall off Medicaid, there is still that need. And that one actually came through at the very last minute. Lynn, back in March, you outlined a list of things to watch out for during the session. And we talked with you about some of them on Florida Matters a few days before DeSantis' State of the State address. Included in that list were permitless carrier school vouchers, affordable housing, the crackdown on so-called woke ideology in education. Let's talk about education. The expansion of vouchers is a big deal, as we've uh, mentioned just now. How is Florida going to pay for it, though? Very carefully. And as I mentioned earlier, they have put money into the budget to serve as sort of an emergency reserve um, in case public school enrollments fall more than predicted and more students tap into this program than the state expected. So they put about $350 million basically into like a little savings account uh, for the districts to use. We still don't know exact cost. I mean, the range goes from $210 $210 million to up to $4 billion. We're not going to know that, I think, until the school year starts, until parents have an opportunity to let this sink in and realize that they can use it. And then we'll know what the real number is going to be. Um, and so that's kind of still remains a cause for concern because as we've seen in other states that have done this, they seriously underestimated um, how much it was going to be. So it's it's really going to be a wait and see. You'll probably see that number come in after the October 1st um, school district um, enrollment counts. Mm-hmm. There were some big changes to higher education too, Lynn. What is it going to mean for staff and students at colleges and universities and what, get, what got left out uh, from those bills? One of the big ones was trying to crack down on what the state considers contentious issues like critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, Gender studies at one point was sort of part of this. What you ended up with um, is sort of almost a pseudo ban. It is not as harsh as it was when the bill uh, first came out. And part of that is because the universities, professors, a lot of people were raising concern that, okay, if you out and out ban some of these things, it could put our accreditation at risk. And we're already having fights over accreditation right now. And Mm -hmm. so what lawmakers sort of ended up with is definitely saying, okay, we don't want DEI programs unless they're mandated by the federal government or, you know, by your accreditation program. And we really want to scale back how you guys talk about certain subjects around critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, gender issues. It's it's going to be a tricky it's going to be tricky navigating some of this and you're already hearing professors who are raising concerns about okay I teach a certain subject I teach history I teach you know gender studies I can't have these conversations in my classroom and so there's still a lot of cause of concern there you now have five year tenure reviews. Mm-hmm where professors can be brought for tenure review basically for any any reason. 
that is still an issue, a really big issue for uh, the unions that represent the professors and the teachers. But then on the flip side, you have more money coming into the state's higher education system. Right. You know, even with higher education, you're seeing this brain drain, the picking off of professors to other schools. Florida State University has already seen several professors who have departed and have been point blank about their reason for leaving and it's because of a lot of this legislation and so the universities are going to be grappling over what can we do what can we not do when it comes to um, some of these measures Mm. and then speaking of gender issues in education the parental rights in education uh, law which opponents call the don't say gay law got expanded to now include will now apply to students up to grade eight. How does that affect students and teachers? Actually, it now applies uh, courtesy of the State Board of Education to all grades. So under the original version of this bill, it would have gone to grade eight, um, but the State Board of Education passed a rule last month that actually extended it to all grades. Mm. What you're seeing in this bill though, in addition to the concerns around how do we talk about sex and gender and gender identity and sexuality, is an expansion of the ability for parents to challenge school books. Um, That was actually a major feature of this bill, and basically it makes it easier for those challenges to to go forth. School districts are going to have to start pulling books when they're challenged. There's a review process. It could be a while before some of these books make it back on bookshelves, if they ever do. And it's part of a growing concern about, you know, how do we educate children in this state? And you have some people who say, let the kids read, you know, why don't we just create a parental opt out and Mm. say, parent, if you don't want your child having access to this book, then opt out of it for your child, but not for everybody else's child. And then you heard the bill sponsor arguing back, well, you know, basically you don't know what you don't know till you find out you don't know it. So your child brings home a book and you look at it and you don't like it. And so right now the school book challenge program has been expanded under this particular piece of legislation. Um, and so have classroom discussions on gender identity and sexual orientation with the exception of sex ed. But even that has gone through a significant amount of changes, too. And so school districts are going to be trying to figure out, again, what can we say, what can we not say, and where are the lines? Because a lot of this language is quite vague. Right. William, I want to ask you about a couple of big pieces of legislation that got passed during the session, including relaxing the laws around gun ownership and further restrictions on abortion. First of all, just remind us, what what are supporters and critics saying about permitless carry. One thing that did not get added to that bill that a lot of gun rights advocates wanted was open carry. That was that was held off uh, in spite of pretty strong urging from the, from the gun rights folks. Another thing that I believe did not pass, correct me if I'm wrong on this, there was a bill passed the House to undo the one gun control measure that actually passed the legislature after the Parkland high school shooting a few years ago, they raised the age for rifle purchases from 18 to 21. There was a bill that passed the House to reverse that. As I understand it, it did not get uh, a Senate hearing. So that didn't change. As to whether there's going to be any backlash, any reaction from this, it's hard to say. We just saw 
yet another mass shooting in Texas, which has the same permitless carry rule. Greg Abbott, Governor Greg Abbott, and others who were in favor of it are standing behind it firmly. Mm. What about the new restrictions on abortion? That was signed by the governor fairly early in this session. Just remind us what's going on there. Well, Florida already had a a ban at 15 weeks, after 15 weeks, with no exceptions for rape, incest, or whatever. This is a ban at six weeks, which does have rape and incest exceptions, but there has to be some form of proof in terms of a police report. And of course, at six weeks, many women, as I understand it, it's too early for them even to know they're pregnant. Now, Florida, until now, has been sort of a haven for people in several states in the Southeast seeking abortions where there were were stricter restrictions on it. Uh, And this ban is likely to end that. Of course, it's also likely to be subject to litigation like a lot of what the legislature did this year. Mm. I mean, it it is already the, the, uh, you know, there's there's a, a case before the courts right now, isn't there, to kind of figure out some of this in Florida? Well, the six week ban can't actually take effect until litigation that now exists over the 15-week ban uh, is, is resolved. That 15-week ban was passed last year, but there's, there's litigation over it. And until that's resolved, the six-week ban won't actually take effect. Mm-hmm. On the immigration front, William, there's new legislation targeting undocumented immigrants. But there is some stuff that isn't in that bill that uh, lawmakers wanted to put in there. What, what's going on with that bill? Possibly the most impactful piece of legislation that passed in this session is something that immigration hardliners have been seeking for years, but in fact it's been opposed by conservative interests in Florida, or rather business interests, and that is use of E-Verify, forcing employers to check with the federal government on the immigration status of their employees. It's been opposed in the past by major industries agriculture, big sugar development, because let's face it, these businesses employ thousands of illegal immigrants. This year, DeSantis forced it through for all employers with 25 employees or more. One thing that did not get passed is, as of about three or four, I don't remember the exact year that it passed, but Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez was one of the main people behind a bill that allows so-called dreamers, that is, people who were brought to this country illegally as children, as minors, so they didn't have any say in coming here, they're allowed to get in-state tuition at Florida universities. There was a move to repeal that. Ron DeSantis wanted to repeal it. It did not get repealed. He did get some very substantial other restrictions, including 12 million bucks added into the budget so that he can fly immigrants up to northern states. They don't even have to be in Florida. He can go pick them up in Texas or wherever and fly them wherever he wants. He also got limits on transporting people in the country without legal authority. If you, and this has raised questions in the minds of people like church leaders, civic community leaders, if they give a, an illegal immigrant a ride to church, are they violating the law? Jason, if I could come back to you for a moment. Affordable housing got a major overhaul. What does it mean for people trying to rent? And what about home buyers? Uh, On the front end, uh, they put a record amount of funding into affordable housing construction. And this is is more than a billion dollars worth of both direct spending and tax breaks, all geared around or, or almost all geared around subsidizing developers who build apartments that are supposed to be affordable to 
low and, and in some cases, moderate income Floridians. Now, all of that is around the supply side, which is important. Everybody understands that the lack of supply is is probably the, the predominant driver of Florida's lack of affordable housing. But most of it will take a long time to come online. And they did almost nothing to help folks that are struggling to say rent right now. And in fact, um, in what I would what I would say in my mind was the worst bill of session, at least from an economic perspective, uh, a number of, of tenants and tenants rights groups around the state have been making progress in cities and counties all over Florida, trying to build some like just basic protections for renters because the state of Florida's uh, landlord tenant law is really lopsided in favor of landlords. And so they've been winning local laws that impose like or, or require just basic protections, Th things like a landlord's got to give a couple of months of notice before they can raise the rent by more than 5%, that, that sort of thing. But right near the end of session, the legislature passed a law that invalidated all of those local ordinances that give rights to tenants. And basically, the word is preemption. They preempted all regulation of, of landlord-tenant relationships to the state. So you saw, you saw a lot of money go into affordable housing construction that should hopefully lead to more supply over time, but you also saw them take rights away from folks who are renting right now. Mm. On the flip side of the money that's going into uh, affordable housing construction in this, this new law that just passed, there is still Florida's slow rolling homeowners insurance crisis, if you want to call it that. Did anything happen there? Is there any change afoot there? Nothing significant. They passed some legislation that was designed to impose um, some level of accountability on insurers that um, that that fail to act in in good faith, that aren't paying claims. But even even that accountability legislation was was significantly weakened before it passed. Mostly, they are still resting on the the legislation they passed in the December special session that um, essentially gave the insurance industry. Virtually almost everything it could have uh, it has been asking for for a long time, and particularly in the realms of of lawsuit protections, uh, you know, making it virtually or not virtually impossible, but very difficult for an individual homeowner to sue an insurance company that they don't think is is paying claims in a fair way, and also dramatically scaling back people's options when it comes to citizens, the state-run insurer that that private insurers hate um, because they don't want it to compete with them. So right now, everybody is is sort of allowing that to unfold. We have not seen any indication yet that that's going to, to have any impact in terms of bringing rates down. Uh, lawmakers have been very sort of aggressively expectation setting and saying that their, their goal with that legislation is just to keep the private insurance market viable. But most of what you saw during the, the general session was was pretty cosmetic. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're looking back at the legislative session and what it means for Floridians. We're speaking with WFSU's Lynn Hatter, investigative journalist Jason Garcia, and political reporter William March. Back with more after the break. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about the 2023 legislative session, what's in the $117 billion budget, and what a slate of new laws means for Floridians. Talking with WFSU News Director Lynn Hatter, political reporter William March, and investigative journalist Jason Garcia. William, let's talk about what came out of the session for Tampa Bay. There's $570 million left over from the defunct All for Transportation tax. The legislature was supposed to come up with a plan for that money, did they? 
No, they did not. They put it off for at least a year. The background on this, of course, is Hillsborough County by, I think, 57 percent passed this this tax in 2018, but the wording was ruled unconstitutional, unacceptable, illegal by a judge in response to a lawsuit by former Hillsborough County Commissioner Stacy White. Mm. That ruling didn't come until they had already collected 560-some million, now almost 570 with interest. So that money is sitting there, and what's to be done with it? Well, the people who are in favor of the referendum obviously believe it should be spent to solve some of Hillsborough's literally billions uh, in backlogs of transportation problems, traffic congestion. There were a couple of bills that went through the legislature that were brought up and discussed in the legislature to decide how to dispose of it. Neither of them passed. The questions were, Ron DeSantis, for example, wanted to do some refunding of people who could prove they'd spent significant amounts on sales taxes due to this. Hmm. And then the rest, he wanted to declare a, a sales tax holiday on other sales taxes until that money was, and replace it with this money until it was used up. The House had a different plan. They couldn't get together on it. So that $570 million is now sitting in the Department of Revenue in Tallahassee while Hillsborough County is not working on uh, its transportation needs. There is money in this budget for the Tampa Museum of Art, the Clearwater Ferry, uh, University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, among others. What are some of the highlights for Tampa Bay? Well, you just mentioned some things that are on what's known as the sprinkle list, which is a list of member projects, member requests that get thrown into the budget at the last minute. Uh, some of them survive, some of them don't. They're, they're usually small things, but they're very important for legislators to go back to their districts after the session and say, look what I brought you. And they include things like $24 million for a marine science center at USF St. Pete, a million bucks for the Tampa Museum of Art, $2 million for a St. Pete Beach fire station, Clearwater Ferry, a million dollars. And the question is, as you asked earlier, how many of these things will survive Ron DeSantis' veto? The, what I read off is just a very partial list. Mm -hmm. How many of those things will survive? And my guess is that more will survive. Jason was talking about the kind of preemption elements of the housing bill. Uh, I'm wondering what that means for local governments, uh, such as those in the Tampa Bay region. What, what does the ultimate preemption bill mean? One thing Jason mentioned was preemption, which is eliminating local government's abilities to pass tenants' rights laws. St. Petersburg uh, is one of, the, one of the cities that will be affected by that. They have a tenants' rights law that this, that this legislation will, will undo. Some of the other preemption measures that passed that will affect any local government anywhere in the state were many cities, counties, including Hillsborough and St. Petersburg, I believe, and Pinellas, I believe, have banned fertilizer sales during the rainy season because of the problem of stormwater runoff carrying fertilizer into water bodies where it pollutes them. The legislature eliminated those bans so that they can no longer use that tool to prevent water pollution. Then another piece of legislation that could well have very dramatic effect is the legislature passed a law saying that if a business sues over an ordinance that the business believes, a new regulation of some kind that the business believes 
has impacted its profits, its profitability. The local government may not enforce that ordinance until the lawsuit is settled, which obviously could take months. There's wording in the bill that's supposed to bring a quick resolution to such lawsuits, but who knows what that might mean. We've been speaking with political reporter William Marsh. William, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Lynn Hadder, News Director with WFSU in Tallahassee. Lynn, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And Jason Garcia, investigative journalist covering corporate influence in the Sunshine State. You can find his newsletter on Substack. Seeking Rents, Jason, thank you as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. Engineering support for this week's show from Dave Anderson, Craig George and Blake Fass. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.